BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's a $128 million transit system. I think it's great. Hardly anyone is riding. I think it's a waste of money. Even as the pandemic wanes, Milwaukee's Hop Streetcar is struggling to get riders back. I'm probably going to wait like a little bit just to see how, again, things play out. The city has no plan to start charging fares. That is not something we're looking at right now. I don't know if I'd ride it if I had to pay for it. But a Fox 6 investigation finds there's no such thing. This is a significant amount of money. As a free ride. You can't say that no one warned you. I don't see how we can sustain this for the next 23 years. I think it's uh, an easy conclusion that this is a boondoggle. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and we welcome Jenna Sachs back to the podcast this week. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, June 17th. And typically, Jenna, when we have you on Open Record, you're here to talk about your latest stories for Contact 6. But this time, we're going to have Jenna turn the tables on me as we talk about my latest investigation into Milwaukee's Hop Streetcar. Now, Jenna, I know you were already familiar with the Hop long before this story, but after watching this investigation, what stood out to you? Well, you're right. I was aware that this had been a hot topic of discussion politically for some time, and I knew that the streetcar wasn't meeting expectations for ridership for a number of different reasons that you outlined really well in your story. But you brought up something toward the end that really stood out to me because I had not realized how long the city had committed financially to this streetcar when you were talking about the 25 years that the city had to commit to the streetcar or pay the grants back. I, I hadn't heard that before, and it made me think, well, there's a couple ways you can look at it. it. It could be a drain on city resources for 25 years, or you could say the city has 25 years to figure out how to turn this into a success. So it was a lot of, it was interesting for me to really hear that this was something that's not gonna be going away in a few years, likely, if there are issues. What, what did you take away as the long-term prospects of the streetcar. Well, I think that's the, 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 the big thing here is from the very outset, the acceptance of it's the strings attached to federal money. When you accept a large grant and those grants weren't used to operate the system, they were used to build it. So the big selling point up front for supporters of this was this is free money. This is federal money that's out there for transit. It's been specifically earmarked. It was the Obama administration that really wanted to push for these streetcars. They felt it was a nice addition to downtowns that would sort of work as sort of in, in concert with existing transit systems, bus systems and, and you know other types of rail lines. Um, so this money was there for the taking. And the strings that are attached, though, is if you take this money to build it, and this is tens of millions of dollars, in in this case, I think it's around $68 million that the city uh, accepted, you are agreeing to operate that system and do whatever it costs to operate that system for 25 years. That's sort of the contractual arrangement. So while the upfront cost is covered by federal dollars and 
be clear, that's still tax money. It's just spread out among the 50 states rather than just the state of Wisconsin or just the city of Milwaukee. Um, but you're committing to that 25-year operation, and that means that this costs something to run every year. So the city does have a cost, and we'll talk a little bit about that coming up, but there is a cost to operate this, and regardless of how successful it is, you have to keep operating. So then the question becomes, and this is really the ultimate question we'll get to, is do you invest even more upfront money and make even more long-term commitment to expand a system to make it more viable, which makes your commitment the first time around seem to be you know, more efficient and effective, but you're also taking a greater risk. It's a gamble. It's a roll of the dice. So obviously this all started with federal grant money. Can you take me back to around the time the decision was made to open the streetcar, to operate it, and when it launched? I believe it was fall of 2018. Is that right? It launched in the fall of 2018. And, and as you're asking me this, I, I'm thinking I should have had this pulled up on my screen already, but I'm gonna, I built a timeline because I wanted to get some idea of uh, you know, what is the real background of this? And I will tell you, whenever you see one of our stories on the air, and Jenna, this is true of you as well, so much work goes into these stories, and a lot of the background work never makes it into the three or four or five minute piece that's on television. But we do the background work because we want to know as much as we can about what we're reporting on so we can put the most important pieces out there. But a lot of times there's a lot of material that's left unsaid or unreported. So are you about to give us some of that material? Yeah, well, so, so th this and, and sometimes this is a great opportunity with a podcast to go into a little bit more depth that we can't on the air. And it's why I love doing this. The timeline that I built, if you actually want to say when did the sort of idea or the concept of a Milwaukee streetcar first come into play, you can go all the way back to the uh, early to mid 90s, 1990s, when there was Congress approved a, a big chunk of money for public transit in Milwaukee, $289 million. And the city left about 91 and a half million of that unspent. They hadn't committed what they were going to do with. It. And there was a lot of debate about what do we do with this extra 91 and a half million dollars. And it sat there year after year after year, approved sort of at a bank somewhere in the federal government, but it wasn't uh, something that the city had had utilized, and the city was in danger of losing that $91.5 million. So in 2007, Mayor Barrett proposed a $100-plus million transit plan that included a three-mile loop streetcar. So that was really the first time there was a formal proposal for the city to have a streetcar. Now, that's 14 years ago, and this didn't start operating until the fall of 2018. So what happened in between. Well, in between that, there were a number of votes. Uh, there, there was political opposition. Back then, county executive, later Governor Scott Walker, had proposed express buses instead of streetcars, so he was opposed to the concept of a downtown streetcar. Um, and it wasn't until, I think, 2011 that a Milwaukee Common Council committee finally approved uh, something like 60 half and a million, 60 Five million dollars, I should say, for a streetcar line. That was the first vote in the city to say we're going to have a streetcar. We're going to spend this federal money. It was a ten to five vote that first time around. Interestingly, those five opponents no longer on the common council. Um, and there have been a number of votes since 2011 that led up to the actual uh, opening of the hop in, in 2018. There have been votes on whether they should already begin to extend this to other places. For instance. The Bucks Arena. Uh, that's one where you look right now with everything that's going on downtown, Jenna, with, with the Bucks and the playoffs and all kinds of people. I was just down there Tuesday for one of the watch parties. The, the, the bus line or the streetcar, I should say, doesn't go there. Um, that's one of those places I think people might say, 
sure, I'll, I'd, I'd take the hop if it took me out to the Deer District. Well, it doesn't go there. There was a proposal at one time to expand the line there, but because this was still in such the early stages and was so controversial, it didn't pass. It was even controversial on within the city common council itself. Um, but there's been opposition from the state legislature who's tried to take actions to make it harder for the city to fund a streetcar operation. So there, there's a lot of political back and forth that's happened but through all of that, the city was still able to get this thing up and running in the fall of 2018. So, Brian, the pandemic obviously disrupted a lot of things, including public transportation. Before the pandemic arrived, how was the streetcar doing in Milwaukee? What did ridership look like versus today? Well, and that really depends on who you ask is whether it was doing well, it was not doing well. I, the commissioner of the Department of Public Works, which operates the streetcar, uh, said that he thought Ridership before the pandemic was, in his words, through the roof. Now, if you look at the actual numbers, it was around 2,100 riders per day. Is that a lot? Is that not a lot? It's hard to know without sort of some context. So I can tell you that transit planners, when they were first you know, looking at this project back in the 2010-2011 area, they projected that this initial line of the streetcar would get about 1,800 riders per day. So 2,100 is more than they expected. So in one way, you could look at that and say it exceeded expectations. On the other hand, those projections assumed those 1,800 or so riders per day would be paying a fare to ride. But as we've has been highly publicized, we've talked about a number of times, Potawatomi uh, Hotel and Casino sponsored the hop with a, a $10 million 12-year sponsorship. Um, and that means the city gets about $833,000 a year out of that sponsorship to help support the streetcar. And as part of that agreement, the city agreed to keep the first year of rides free. The idea was to drum up interest in the streetcar system. So while they did exceed the projected numbers, they only did so, some would argue, because it was free. So what happens when they start to charge for the system? And the city has acknowledged that's why they still don't charge a fare, because ridership hasn't hit a level where they feel like they can afford to start charging. Otherwise, you will see a significant drop in ridership. It's natural with any system. Something goes from free to being something you have to pay for. Fewer people are going to do it. And that was before the pandemic. So they were sort of teetering on this line of right around where they expected numbers to be if they charged a fare, but it was free. And then the pandemic comes along and obviously that's hit everybody hard. And in the transit world, it's been a disaster. Um, the the Milwaukee County transit system, the bus system, saw about a 50% drop in ridership last year. That's substantial because they serve millions of people throughout the year. Um, but the the hop, which obviously serves a much smaller population and has a very different purpose. It's not a commuter system that gets people to jobs. It's more of a circulator in the downtown area, um, almost more of a, a visitor's attraction or a way for people who work downtown to get around to different things. Um, that system saw about a 75% drop in ridership. At its lowest point, there were only a couple of hundred riders per day on this uh, system with 18 stops. So you had two or three of these hop streetcars going around and just a couple of hundred people getting on from morning until nighttime. It really wasn't being used much at all. And now that we're coming out of the pandemic and spring is here and warmer weather is here, we should be seeing an increase in that. We should be seeing those numbers come back. And they are slightly, but they are nowhere near pre-pandemic levels. In fact, the most, re pardon me, the most recent numbers, uh, that are published on the Milwaukee Streetcar website, the ridership figures 
Uh, so we're still at about a third of what ridership was before the pandemic. And there are a number of factors in that, but uh, for sure it's nowhere near what it was even before the, the pandemic arrived. And you mentioned in your report that compared to other cities, that rebound has been much slower than other communities have seen with their mass transit, right? It, it, well, in particular, streetcar systems is what I compared. There are about uh, two dozen of these types of systems throughout the country. I mentioned that uh, the Obama administration really decided to put an emphasis on on this kind of system. They like the idea of the downtown circulator streetcar. Um, and there's you know many who believe that uh, you know Portland obviously is maybe the place people point to. Portland, Oregon, uh, with the modern streetcar put a lot of money into it, invested, and they've had a very successful streetcar system. It fits the vibe of that community, and I think a lot of other cities have thought maybe we could get a piece of that vibe, that sort of cool, modern, you know, you've got uh, younger, maybe urban professionals or others who just like the urban lifestyle, who don't want, who, who either want to walk places or want to ride mass transit. If you create something like this in a downtown area, you might see a lot of people ride it. Well, other cities have tried to replicate this, but many without nearly the success of Portland. One city that has been successful is Kansas City, and they have a streetcar system similar to Milwaukee's in terms of its length. It's about three miles long, um, but it's been much more successful. It is also free. A lot of these other systems charge a dollar, a dollar fifty, maybe two dollars to ride. Kansas City decided to keep theirs free. Theirs has been very popular, uh, much more so than Milwaukee's. And while the pandemic hurt that system, as soon as things started to let up, as soon as people started getting back out and doing more things, Kansas City's system has seen a big boost in ridership. They're not back to pre-pandemic levels, but they are back considerably from where they were. And, and part of that is Kansas City's system connects a lot of popular attractions. It connects areas where people gather. It connects bar and restaurant districts. It connects the the power and light district, which is a very popular entertainment district, the, the, the arena. Um, there are other places. So it seems to go the places people want to go. That's been one of the big criticisms of the Hop Street car here in Milwaukee is the existing line doesn't really go a lot of places people want to go. It doesn't currently go to the Bucks Arena. It doesn't go even though it's sponsored by Potawatomi, it doesn't go to the casino, it doesn't go to American Family Field, it doesn't go to Summerfest or the museums on the lakefront, though that may change within the next year or so. Um, so it doesn't go a lot of places, and th for that reason, one among uh, many, we haven't seen the numbers really bounce back very quickly. And so advocates for the streetcar, like Mayor Barrett, they say, if we want this to succeed, we have to add those extensions, Right. Yeah, and one of the big things that they're looking at is adding extensions not just to attractions but into neighborhoods because one of the real criticisms of this system uh, from those who rely on mass transit is this doesn't really serve your typical ma mass transit rider. This isn't the thing that gets uh, someone who is poor and can't afford their own vehicle to a job in another location. It's not a commuter system. But if they can get these into the neighborhoods north and south of downtown, into Walker's Point, into Bronzeville to the north, um, there are many people in the community who say that would really boost ridership because it could get people from those neighborhoods into downtown to some of the city's various restaurants and bars and other attractions. And, and that's their hope. Now, of course, the roadblock to that is that's another massive investment of money to extend those lines, which means there needs to be federal money and probably some amount of local match. The good news for the city, if you're a supporter of this concept, is there's been a recent change in the, the federal rules for the use of this kind of money where it used to be a 50-50 match. 
it is now an 80-20 match, I believe. It might be 60-40. I believe it's 80-20, though. And if that's the case, it means four out of five dollars toward expanding a line like this would come from the federal government. Now, you talk to Mike Nichols of the Badger Institute. They're a nonprofit here that's been critical of this system. They would say that is uh, that's a trap because it's just like this first line. You're committing to 25 years of operations. And as we talked about in the story, it's the operational costs that could really cost local taxpayers if they can't find a way to get enough ridership, charge a fare, or get enough advertising to cover the cost of the system. We talked a little bit about this in the beginning, but when it comes to uh, the suspending of service, if the city decided to suspend their service of the hop, would it be too expensive to shut down? Can you explain why that may be the case? Well, and, th- and that came up last fall when obviously we were at the worst time in the pandemic in terms of numbers. Things were spiking. They were peaking. Uh, very, very few people were riding the hop at all. And we were heading into the winter months when we knew the numbers were going to drop even further. So there were some on the Common Council who said, hey, maybe we need to just suspend this service for a while and and save some money because we've got a budget crunch and nobody's riding this thing anyway, so let's hold up. Well, the Commissioner of Public Works uh, issued a memo at the time saying, hold on, this isn't as easy as it sounds. Suspending service would actually be almost as expensive as running it practically empty as is. And you think, well, how could that be? Well, one of the big reasons is, as I mentioned earlier, the streetcar is operated by a private contractor, Transdev. That private contractor has a base fee they are paid that's well over a million dollars, might be one to two million dollars a year to, to operate the system. That isn't negotiable. That's a base fee. Then they're paid additionally for the amount of hours and miles that the thing is operating, and that can be reduced. So you could save money there, except you still have to pay to you know the electricity costs for the line you still have to pay to maintain the tracks and the vehicles and and the commissioner argued there would be a substantial startup cost to retrain employees rehire and get the system back up and running and have some sort of an advertising push to remind people hey the streetcar's running again on top of all of that they say you would lose a lot of people would lose faith in the system the idea that something that's supposed to be there whenever you need it would be gone, they argue, would 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 sort of cost political capital. People would, would either forget it's there or they would uh, deem it to be a failure. So all of those things together, they said it's just better to keep operating this thing. And, and that obviously is controversial because you're talking about paying you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to run something that hardly anybody's riding. But the argument, again, was it really wouldn't save that much money to stop running it. Critics will say that that raises an important point, though, which is if it's that expensive even to shut it down, you know, how are we going to pay for this thing for another 20 something years? Remind me what the deficit is the city has on the streetcar. Was it three million? And and I will say that term deficit, I I had some pushback from Alderman Bob Bauman, who's a supporter of the system. Um, But but the pushback really, I think, comes from how you want to term what this is. What we know for sure is the, the streetcar op costs a certain amount to operate. And this year, 2021, there's about $4.5 million budgeted to operate the streetcar system from professional services, utilities, insurance, all that sort of thing. So it's $4.5 million to keep this thing moving. Um, and the only revenues right now, there are no revenues from fares. And even if there were, they'd be pretty paltry. If you charged a buck... Uh, you know, a person and there's only, you know, a few hundred thousand people riding it throughout the entire course of the year. It's a few hundred thousand dollars, but it's not four and a half million. So the biggest portion of the city's funding right now is coming from that Potawatomi sponsorship, $833,000 each year. 
they get another maybe you know a couple of hundred thousand dollars. They're hoping for as much as three to five hundred thousand from other advertisements. They've put up these so-called smart kiosks at each of the uh, stations where you can uh, get on the hop, and they can run a, a cycle of ads on a TV screen on these smart kiosks. And so they sell advertisements on that. Well, it's hard to sell ads on something if no one's there watching it. So even if they get that three to five hundred thousand, which was projected, it's about one point two million. Uh, in in funding, and there's about another hundred thousand dollars in a federal grant that the city is still getting, so about one point three million. So you're looking at a deficit of more than three million dollars a year uh, here in 2021, and potentially more going forward that has to be covered somehow, somehow with money that the city raises or from some fund that's that's sitting somewhere, and the city's chosen to pay that through the transportation fund, which is essentially the parking fund. That's what it used to be called. It's from parking meter fees and fines and, and other parking fines. When people get a ticket for overnight parking on the east side, that goes into that fund. So increases in, in fees and fines in that area may well be used to be supporting the streetcar system. You were able to track down Mayor Barrett for this story. I know his office had denied your initial request for an interview, so you were able to find him out and about and ask him some questions about this. And he had talked about wanting to expand it into other neighborhoods. How would the city pay for that? Is that going to be covered by that 80-20 split you mentioned earlier, or would that be covered a different way? Well, and that's what the the mayor says they're looking at. So President Biden has talked recently about, uh, and there's been discussion in Congress and debate in Congress about the amount there should be, but about an infrastructure package to, uh, you know, for roads and bridges and transit and other things throughout the country coming out of the pandemic. There's been a talk about investment in infrastructure. So obviously transit is a piece of that. And uh, Commissioner Polensky told me and the mayor reinforced this, that they are hoping within that transit package, they can find some funding for expanding the streetcar. And that would be for getting into those neighborhoods north and south of the city. And that means using federal dollars. Obviously, there's always a portion of that that's a local match. So if it's 80% coming from federal money, you've still got to get 20% here locally. And that's going to be a political uh, debate that will will take place if, if they uh, make that kind of proposal. Um, but that's where they're looking to expand. Now, there is already one line, one expanded line that's in the ground, um, mostly built. And that's the so-called lakefront line. Uh, that was already approved with a so-called tiger grant. Um, and, and so that money's been spent. It's not finished. And the reason it's not finished is because the city has been waiting for the long delayed Kocher high rise. It's right there at the corner of the lakefront, um, a prominent location. When that high rise is built, the, the ground floor will include a hop station that will be integrated with the construction of the building. So right now there are tracks that run down Michigan street that end in the middle of the street and they're waiting for the couture to be finished so that they can complete that. That will get the hop out to things like uh, Summerfest grounds, or very close to the Summerfest grounds, to the art museum, to Discovery World, the lakefront. That could potentially give people a little more reason to ride the hop who otherwise don't have one now. Um, the question is, you know, where will they start? Where would they go else in downtown to hop on and go? Maybe they find parking that's a little easier somewhere else, or they're, maybe they're at the public market and decide to ride it out there. But the hope is when that one is completed sometime in 2022, that it will uh, increase the attraction to riding the hop. You know, I liked the interview in your story that you did with the babysitter who was taking the child she was watching on the hop to take 
to take her to the playground a, a mile north. And I thought this would be really fun for kids who live downtown to get on the hop. I was thinking, you know, that would be fun to take the kids downtown to ride, especially if it's free at some point. And I heard that since your story aired, you noticed something with ridership figures like that babysitter on the Hops website. What happened and how does the city explain that? Well, first, the, the, the babysitter, what was interesting I thought about her interview was she really enjoyed the hop during the pandemic, largely because she didn't have to worry about social distancing because nobody else was on it. So it was great for her, not real great for the system, obviously, because it meant nobody was riding, but it made social distancing very easy. So she was able, she, she babysits in the third ward, could hop on the hop and take it up to Cathedral Square. There's a playground and on a nice day, they could enjoy that and then get right back on to go home and it was perfectly free. Um, but when we met her, we were actually watching a hop station. Even though there's ridership data published, we just wanted to see what does this look like? When I tell you, for instance, that 617 people a day rode the hop in the month of May, according to the latest city figures, what does that mean? What does that look like? So we sat and we watched the Cathedral Square hop station for eight hours from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we didn't pick a cold, blustery day or something that would sort of bias what we saw. We picked one of the nicest days in April at that time. It was 71 degrees for a high. It was partly cloudy, mostly sunny. Um, so it was a very nice day. Theoretically, would be a lot of people out and about doing things. And we saw a few people at the park. 48 hop cars passed us by in that one station throughout the course of those eight hours going either east or west. And during that time, 22 people boarded the hop. And that includes babies and strollers. So not a lot. Of, and most of the time it was empty. The vast majority of the time it was empty. When I did the story originally, you know, that 22 numbers is one station for an eight-hour period. What did it look like uh, for the whole month or for the whole system? At the time, the hop, they published ridership figures on their website. And at the time, it showed that there were about 435 people a day for the month of March and 450 people a day for the month of April. And it stood out because the monthly ridership total was exactly the same. Out of pure coincidence, it was 13,492 people who rode the system in March, same in April. There's just, you know, an extra day in March, so the average was slightly less in March. But 400 and something. Since I've done the story, I went back and looked, and, and the ridership data has increased for those same months. They've changed the numbers. So now it's showing an average of something like 600. And I think it was uh, for the month of March, it was 591 people a day, 610 a day for the month of, I'm sorry, for April. Yeah, 610 for April, 671 a day for the month of May. So the numbers have increased by about 36% since I did the story for those same months. So what happened? Like, why did those numbers change? I did ask DPW for an explanation, and I received one just this morning, in fact, or maybe yesterday afternoon, um, that uh, the one of the streetcars was not apparently relaying its data properly, and they have gone back and reviewed that and determined that they it wasn't relaying the data properly, and they have now added those numbers in to the system. They say because of my email, they've realized they need to clarify that on the website and they're going to add a footnote that explains what happened. Um, as of right now, when we're recording the podcast at 9.16 a.m. here on Thursday morning, the 17th of June, that explanation is not on the website. Certainly, you, critics might look at that and say, well, you did a story at, about how bad things were and suddenly the numbers got better. Um, but it, it 
If they were going to inflate the numbers in a way that looked a whole lot better, you'd think they would have gone higher because even at 671 a day, like I said, that's still about a third of pre-pandemic figures. So we're a long way from seeing the streetcar recover. I was talking about your story with my husband last night, just talking about how interesting it was. And he said it would be really interesting to see what the state is in a year from now or two years from now when the pandemic isn't a factor when life and activity are returning to normal. Uh, I assume you're probably going to keep an eye on this, but do you think the next few years are going to be pretty interesting to see well, what the ridership shows? I, I think there's so many variables. And yeah, I, I do think this is something we'll need to follow. One thing is clear, because the city's made this financial commitment, the streetcar isn't going away. So for detractors, um, you know, if they hope the streetcar is going to shut down, the city would lose a lot of money. We would have to pay back as a city about a $68 million federal grant for the construction of the streetcar because there is a contract to keep operating this thing for another 23 years. So it's not going anywhere. The real debate will be whether it expands. And if it expands, will that you know boost interest in ridership? If it doesn't expand, will ridership come back when, as you said, the pandemic is no longer a factor? We did talk to a an urban planner at UWM, Bob Schneider, an associate professor there. Um, I think that's right. I, I don't want to misidentify his, his, the terminology. Um, but I, I know he's... Uh, uh, an instructor at UWM and um, an urban planning expert. He said one of the factors that's keeping ridership down, most likely in the streetcar right now, is that workers haven't come back downtown. That's something we need to watch because a lot of workers who went remote, their companies have either decided to stop renting office space downtown or leasing office space and just keep people remote, or they've just been slower about getting people back into the office. So they're still at about 25% uh, in terms of downtown worker capacity of what it was pre-pandemic. When the workers come back, they say, then you'll probably see some of that ridership come back. Um, but what's interesting about that as a factor is the streetcar system was never pitched. It was never sold as a system for downtown workers. That's one factor. It was a system for visitors, and it was a system to attract people to come downtown. So if you're relying only on workers to come back to boost ridership, again, that really wasn't, wasn't the selling point originally. I think, though, within a year or two, you're right. The big question will be if activity downtown comes back to normal, if workers come back downtown, if the lakefront line starts getting people to things like Summerfest and other things, will we see this ridership exceed previous expectations? Will they hit a point where they can start to charge a fare and raise some money? Uh, will there be other federal grants they can use to help support the operations? Those are all key questions. But until they do, the city of Milwaukee has to come up with a few million dollars a year to fund this system. And right now that is coming out of a transportation fund that has otherwise traditionally been used to support general expenses for the city. So while the mayor says it isn't costing uh, property taxpayers any money, indirectly it may be because it's coming out of fund that otherwise could offset property taxes. You had a lot of really interesting data in your story. So I encourage people to go to fox6now.com to check it out. What do you hope people took away from your report? I know you had a lot of information in there. It was very informative. Is that what you were hoping to get across? This is what your tax dollars have paid for. This is what the risks are. This is where things might improve or might not. What do you hope people take away from this report? Well, I hope transparency is, is a big piece of it because I think there's so much, that, you know, politics is inevitably behind this. There are detractors. There are supporters. The supporters don't necessarily want you to know that it's costing a lot of money in the, you know, while they're trying to get this thing up to some, you know, level that they can start to charge a fare and, it, you know, maybe get to critical mass. And, and the pandemic was a big problem with that. The detractors, they don't necessarily want to admit that, uh, you know, there are some successes here and there. So I think that the key is I wanted people to see 
These are the actual numbers involved. And these are the roadblocks. These are the things that could, you know, could make it more successful. If it expands, it may well uh, appeal to a lot more people. The downside of that is the financial commitment that the city would have to make to do that. So I, I had someone actually write me after the story who said, we need you know, local news to to encourage more use of mass transit, not discourage it. And, and my response was, it's not our job to encourage use of mass transit or to discourage it. It's our job to let you know what's there and what's happening. And if it's a great idea, then, then outstanding. And if, and if it's too expensive or it's problematic, then you should know that too. I, I think the real job here was to go, what's going on with the hop? That was my assignment. What's going on with the hop? And then to let everybody else make decisions based on that information. Well, I think anyone who visits the downtown will see the hop go by, and very often there aren't all that many people on it. So I think you answered some questions that a lot of people have about whether people are using the hop and what challenges have been like. I think I look forward to future reports on this. I'm sure you're going to do them. We will. I, I will say one thing to close this out, Jenna. I, years ago, and because I, I want to admit that I've done this before, I, I did a story once when there was a lot of criticism of the new bike racks on county buses, and we watched and. Hardly anybody. Those bike racks were empty. Nobody was using them. And there was a, a then county supervisor who's now a city alderman, uh, Mark Borkowski, who said uh, he made a promise at the time, probably something he regrets. He said, if the the use of those things ever hits the projections that have been made by the supporters of this, I will eat my tie. And those projections were reached and exceeded. Whether he ever ate his tie, I don't know, but he certainly ate his words, and and I think he's maybe been a little more cautious about doing that. Uh, Mark Borkowski, I asked him to do an interview for this story, and uh, he declined, um, vehemently declined, in fact. I don't think he wanted to be in that spot again, maybe, but, but the point being, sometimes things don't start off so well. They gain interest over time. It, there may be a bright future for the hop. Certainly at the moment, things aren't looking so great. That seems like about as good a time as any for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more personal, have a little fun by answering a question we have not prepared for. And here to ask us that question is executive producer Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hello, friends. So in the past, I've asked questions that, you know, make you think back to childhood or maybe your last few Amazon orders. This one's only going to have to, you're only going to have to think about a few hours back. So my question to you is, what is the first thing you thought of or thought about when you woke up this morning? That's easy for me. I can go first because that was, that was really okay. easy. I woke up. So today is my wife's birthday. Um, so happy birthday, Denise. Um, I hope hey. she listens to Open Record. I don't know if she does. Maybe she goes for a walk today. <laughs> She'll have it on a podcast. Um, but no, it is her birthday. And the first thing I thought of, <laughs> I'm going to admit this, if she listens now, she'll know. The first thing I thought of was, <laughs> crap, I have not wrapped the presents. So I've got to sneak them uh, down to where we have our present wrapping things and try to quietly wrap presents this morning because um, they weren't ready. So that was the first thing. I, well, actually, what I thought is, crap, I've got to wrap the presents and we've got a podcast recording. That's what I thought of. <laughs> I guess I guess that's a better oh no, like at least you bought the presents. Like well, I thought you were right. going to say, "Oh no, I got her nothing." Like No, that that, know, uh, that it could have been worse. I'm not that dumb. I, well, no, I'm I probably did, that, I'm probably that. I'm probably that dumb, but at least I it's wasn't It's not this dumb. Year. It's like a slip of the brain like, "Oh man." <laughs> Or it came up so quick. That I mean, anyway. and it's, you know, so I, I do that a lot. I think when I wake up in the mornings is when I suddenly realize all the things that I have to get done and I immediately go from rest to panic mode. <laughs> yes. 
Every I see time. I, you're both nodding heads like, yeah, mm-hmm, been there. Mm-hmm. I, so then it's like, oh, yeah, I also have to, you know, take my son up to this place. And I've got a we've got the podcast recording. There's the morning meeting. And then I've got the. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I was uh, I, I thank goodness for Ted Perry's story on breathing because I took the dogs for a walk, which I also had to get done. And on that walk, um, I, I listened to his story and I started breathing through my nose and trying to calm myself. And so if you haven't seen it, watch it. This is a cross promotion here from Open Record. Check out Ted Perry's story on breathing because um, it kind of helped calm me today. All right, I'm gonna go next because my photographer is waiting outside in his car. (laughs) Matt Matt can keep waiting for this podcast to wrap up. Um, The first thing I thought was I woke up at 6.48 this morning and I thought, well, that's late. Because I can tell you what time I wake up every morning at 6.24 a.m. And that is when my kids' clocks say that it is 6 o'clock. Because my kids are allowed to wake up when there is a 6 on the clock. And we turn their clocks back. So every day, they they wake me up at (laughs) 6.24. And I woke up like 20 minutes later today, naturally, which was a treat. And then I thought, well... Do I get out of bed because they like to wake me up? And if I'm not in bed and they don't get to wake me up, is it more trouble for me to get up and get ready? Or do I lay here and wait for them to wake me up so they don't get angry <laughs> because I wasn't in bed? So that's like the, that's what was going through my head. I ended up just like laying there out of fear of my kids being angry that I wasn't in bed when they woke up and they couldn't come in and wake me up. You know what's funny about your six on the clock thing is I did that with my daughter once where we, we made her wait till there was a seven on the clock. And one morning she woke up late and it was already eight. That's very confusing. And so she just – so it was like 930 and she hadn't come out of her room and I thought, what's going on? And I went in and she was just sitting at her bed playing. And it was bright sunshine. But she looked over at the clock and thought, well, it's not seven yet. So we, We've had that problem too. Well. It's My alarm clock is better than it used to be because it used to be my – one of my kids yelling, Mom, I pooped. Mom, yeah. I have to go potty. I pooped. <laughs> can, we, can we make that the title of this podcast? <laughs> Mom, I pooped. Too much insight into my life. But at least now that's not right. how I'm waking up. Usually it's like some little bodies just face planting on the bed, which is fun, I guess. But they're pretty rough. I mean, they're really rough. They are not gentle when they jump in. No. They don't care. They have, they take their watermelon heads and just thrash them wherever they want. <laughs> All right, Sarah, how about you? What were you um, thinking of? Okay, so uh, Je- my Jenna, we, we'll uh, let Jenna escape. Yeah. Sorry, She's got to go oh, uh, yeah. hop in okay, the car bye, off guys. to a story. Contact six awaits. So, Sarah, how about um, you? What were you thinking of? Yeah, so uh, my family, we are going on a road trip out west uh, in just a few days. And uh, so I have piles everywhere and I have lists, but I have not packed a single thing in a single suitcase bag, Hate anything. So when I woke up this morning, I was like, oh my gosh, it's Thursday and we leave very soon. And oh my gosh. And so then again, I started going through the list, like my mental list of just all the things that still need to be checked off. So I'm going to give you a little bit of my packing advice, which is probably terrible advice. <laughs> I admit <laughs> my packing advice is Wait until almost the last minute. And here's why. Because there is so much you cannot pack in advance that you have to go, oh, I got to remember that. Oh, I got to remember that. But I need that the night before. What I find is last minute packing, at least you know, oh, I can throw it all in now. Yes. As long as you know you don't have to suddenly walk. As long as you don't don't suddenly realize I have loads of laundry to do and no time to do it. But 
Right. That's the only one. Otherwise, like the, the yeah. toiletries, the, the toothbrush, the phone chargers, the wallet, the keys, the whatever. Yeah. You can't pack it until the last minute. That is the truth. You're right. So you know what? Maybe I should just take a chillax pill and just not worry about it till tomorrow night because really – you're right. <laughs> as long kids... as you know you've got the clothes you'll need, the swimsuits fit, the whatever, yes. then, then yes. just the actual packing thing I, is a night before thing for me, and it goes really well. And all the bottles of wine for the hotel rooms. But I digress. <laughs> it, it's not in the carry-on unless they're under three ounces. But who wants a <laughs> bottle of wine? We're, taking, we're taking a road trip. <laughs> oh, road <laughs> trip. Limits okay, be darn. Is, okay, got it. Okay, they can be any size you want them to be. All right. Well, Sarah, thank you. And, and I want to thank Jenna, who had to take off, for joining us. Uh, if you have a question you'd like to submit for our off-the-record segment or a topic you want us to discuss on the podcast, an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, please send us an email. Send them to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and of course, Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson, and we'll be back again next week. Next week.